0: If you're in the Bay and can make it to Berkeley on April 18th, join us at our robotics and AI conference. We'll have live demos, interviews with leading robotics and AI technologists, and technical workshops that are pretty cool, along with some networking. Get 15% off your ticket using promo code equity at techwrench.com slash robotics If you're looking to sell your private company stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. With more than $4 billion in company-approved transactions, SharesPost is the leading marketplace for private company shares. To learn more, visit us at sharespost.com slash equity.
1: Hello, and welcome back to Equity. I'm TechCrunch's Silicon Valley editor, Connie Loises, and I'm joined this week by TechCrunch venture capital reporter, Kate Clark. Hi, guys. How's it going? Good, Kate. So great to see you. crunch news is Alex Wilhelm.
0: Hey, everybody. Hello,
1: Alex. And um, our special guest, which I will get to in a minute, but I have to say, guys, I missed you.
2: We missed you. It's good to be uh, back.
1: Yeah, it's great to be back. Um, I did enjoy having a little downtime, though I think I spent most of it screaming at my sons all <laughs> the holidays.
0: Well, then you can come um, and scream at us, so it's totally yeah, fine. Well, exactly. you much for change.
1: <laughs> exactly. Well, somebody who knows about screaming at children, although are a little bit older, is our guest, Ed Sim, who is here from New York from Bold Start Ventures. Ed, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so I understand you flew out to San Francisco on Tuesday. So like right after the snowstorm, basically.
3: Absolutely. But, the, it, you know, there was no storm at all. It was like an inch of snow. So they built it up.
1: Oh, is that right? Yeah. And yeah, the media, you would yeah. have thought it was like the apocalypse out there.
0: Yeah, it's not. It was like never trust the-, the media. Come on, guys.
1: Fake news. Well, now they're saying there's like, you know, uh, flooding coming, uh, heavy rainstorms.
3: Uh, I've been completely disconnected since
1: <laughs> Well, something to look forward to. Ask for the best. Exactly.
3: Yeah. I'm just like, I don't know. The weather's nice.
1: <laughs> so, Ed,
2: there is one uh, bold start portfolio company that I'm interested in, and that's superhuman. And it's not because I'm necessarily an inbox zero junkie, but I've heard a lot about it. And I, I'm i not really sure why. Why do you think it's generated so much buzz?
3: I think the uh, well, the team is amazing, but and the product is equally amazing. And Rahul uh, is the former founder of Reportive, which was sold to ah. LinkedIn. So he was the first person that hacked ah. into Google Apps or Gmail and got rid of the ads and actually mm-hmm. built something productive. So on the one hand, he did something elegant, but on the other hand, he was responsible for all that bloat where you see inside of Gmail now with all the applications being embedded on the side. Mm-hmm. So basically, after he sold his company to LinkedIn, he said why can't I create a better email experience that goes back to the original Gmail thesis, which was blazingly fast, super easy, uh, and all those kind of tenets. So he built out Superhuman. He built it inside of the Chrome browser. He, he also has a native app. And he the product is absolutely elegant and beautiful. And then he went after the influencers. So every person that you may talk to, founders of the top firms.
2: Uh, yeah, that's what it is. Exactly. Mm-hmm.
3: So he's built the buzz. He's, a, he's an absolute uh, visionary when it comes to how to... Get something out to the market
2: do you use superhuman
3: uh, as part of our investment we said Rahul you have to promise us one thing he said what is that I said can we be the first check in your bank account and can we be the first user of any new product that, that you come out with and he said absolutely just give us great feedback so my partner Ellie and I were at user number one of the product user number one of the mobile product wow. outside of the nice yeah
2: and what's your favorite thing about it
3: I love it because I can get stuff done in like five times the speed so for example I spend a lot of time making introductions or connecting people, and he has something called snippets. And I can say the snippet or a blurb for every portfolio company I have. So when I make an introduction, I just hit Control-Shift-I, and it automatically knows it's an intro and removes someone to BCC. And then I can hit a snippet and then say, pinpoint software, and it pulls it up. And I hit the button and set. So something that would have taken me five minutes took 30 seconds.
1: Right. Interesting. And I'm sorry, did you say you were uh, an investor in reportive? Yep. You, okay. I, I still love that uh, that feature. Uh, it helps. Sol- so
3: he's got a lot of that mm-hmm. built into the application itself. So okay. rather than have all the bloatware, he has um, tracking built in. He's got um, uh, the reportive functionality in terms of knowing who is available mm-hmm. and, and what their backgrounds are. It has all the emails about you. And the coolest thing is eventually in the bottom right corner – his vision from day one was mm-hmm. to actually charge people. So Reportive was a free product, mm-hmm. and his vision was I'm going to create a business product for business people. And the companies may not pay for it. Actually, some individuals who are business owners might pay for it themselves off their credit card. But he's going to do a whole host of enterprise integrations as well.
1: Interesting. And so, do you see this as a standalone company, or was he pretty happy with you know selling to a?
3: Yeah, no, most founders after they have that exit Mm -hmm. where they've done, you know, well, but not kind of changed the world. Mm -hmm. He actually wants to create a super big company. So superhuman is like an email, but there's a lot more that he wants to do. He wants to make people brilliant at what they do. So you can imagine all the other things that people do at work that he can uh, build in the easy, fast and beautiful way.
1: I can't actually what what is another thing that could be on the horizon. I think about
3: all the productivity apps that you use uh, on a daily basis. I don't want to give away sure, thanks but now. but let's just say he's got a whole host of things
1: uh behind uh, the, the hopper. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. Um you know, I don't even I am just looking at it out, but I noticed it doesn't have um its funding information in Crunchbase. I assume that's by design.
3: It's by design. Yeah, he, <laughs> he's a very stealthy kind of guy. Okay. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep.
1: Interesting.
2: Very interesting. Well, switching gears, I guess, quite a lot into the uh, digital health industry. Um, a round I wrote about this week was the $51 million Series B for the Pill Club, which um, was led by VMG Partners with participation from GV, Acme Capital, which is the new firm that is now managing Sherpa Capital's funds. Because
1: um, Sherpa Capital had a little bit of a hiccup last year. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the founders exited. Shervin Pishvar, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Well,
2: the – yeah, separately that they are now – they rebranded it this week, I guess, as Acme Capital. Right, right. Well, it's actually not a rebrand, but yeah. Yes. Okay.
1: Mm -hmm. And he's raising a separate fund, I understand, too. I I haven't followed that closely. That's okay. just they participated in, in this round. This was this is uh, I think uh, my old colleague uh, Dan Primack reported that in Axios. I think Scott's looking to raise like a four hundred million dollars fund. Okay, just a little aside. Mm-hmm. Anyway, back to Pill Yeah,
2: definitely. So um, so Acre Capital participated um, alongside Base Ten and uh, Shasta Ventures. Um, so I think Pill Club is an interesting company. They are birth control delivery, and um, they also write prescriptions for birth control to um, people in 35 states. So a little bit different, different than Nurex, which is another venture-funded business in the space, but they um, just do birth control delivery and not writing prescriptions. Um, so yeah, Alex, we were talking about this a little bit earlier. Yeah. Um, there's been There's been a lot of uh, investment in telemedicine lately, but a little bit less so in women's health specifically. Yeah.
0: So what what really hit me about this was the idea of having access to doctors, not in traditional doctor environments. And if everyone can think back to the time before uh, cannabis was legal in California, you had to get a prescription for it. You had to talk to a doctor. And I actually had a doctor come to my apartment to give me (laughs) some sort of screening so I could get a prescription for... um, for fun things. And uh, this idea, I'm trying to be relatively PC about this because, you know, serious topic, unserious example. But the idea of uh, access to medical professionals in non traditional ways, as the pull club is doing, is, I think, super cool and does democratize access to medicines uh, in ways that are going to change how people get access to what they need. And, um, we were talking about this before the show, kind of riffing you over the the topic. And there's an idea called the contraceptive desert. Uh, now, if you're familiar with food deserts, that's a, a place in the world in which you can't find access to like fresh food, for example. But it was news to me that there are certain places where medicines are hard to get. So, Kate, what is that? How does it kind of manifest?
2: Yeah. So there's contraceptive deserts all over the U.S., and it's basically just a region where um, you're not reasonably close to a public clinic. So it's it's much harder for you to you know obtain things like. Birth control. So these companies, though they you know they are just as helpful for someone like me who lives in a city, um, just out of pure convenience. They're also game changing for uh, women who live in these in these contraceptive deserts. Who um, you know now they can use an app and have it delivered to their doorstep, and they can even have it prescribed to them if they're in one of the states where they where um, the Pill Club is able to do this. And the Pill Club said with their latest funding. Their goal is to be able to write prescriptions for women in, in all 50 states.
0: Well, with $51 million in capital in this round, I think about $62 million raised now total, they've definitely greatly increased their capital base. So presumably they can go after those last 15 states they haven't yet gotten to. I- I'm curious though if there's a regulatory yeah. issue at play in those states or just simply a they haven't gotten to those states yet. But with over $60 mil for the pill club and I think over $40 million for uh, – is it Nurx or Nurex, Kate?
2: I think it's Nurex. and the reason I think that is, I think I've been saying it wrong the whole time and saying Nurex. <laughs> and, Does Anyone else know? That's my, I, I don't know. I mispronounce like everything. I in mispronounce my life. everything too. It's a huge problem of mine.
3: I think they really. ran out of URLs. So. <laughs> <well,
0: I>, these <laughs> guys look a bit like random Nurex. letters, Nurex. Uh, but we'll call it Nurx.
2: Some will correct us. Yeah, I, I I really hope I'm right on this one, but like I just said, I I'm often wrong.
0: Well, Anyways, uh, the Pill Club and Nurex have raised over $100 million, uh, together for this space. And that's kind of encouraging. I think it shows to venture capital paying so. more attention to, to not just male stuff, if you will.
1: Absolutely. Well, also, you know, it, the, these um, desert cities notwithstanding, I mean, there's so much pressure on women now, especially with um, sort of, you know, this – The whole issue of contraception sort of, you know, being in the spotlight under the Trump administration Mm -hmm. and lawmakers attempts to limit um, women's access to birth control. So uh, I think it makes it easier for anyone needing birth control not to have to go to an office. What's kind of interesting to me or I guess a question is whether Planned Parenthood would ever get into the business of sending contraceptives out. They they seem to Mm. be getting like a little bit more. Um, te- yeah, a little more techie. Um, just today they developed or announced a chatbot that can answer questions about sexual health as part of um, kind of a broader effort to bring sex education that's, to the masses. That's
2: great to hear. I hadn't I hadn't read that, but I, I do think it would be something that would make a lot of sense for them to do. Yeah, I seemingly. Mean, of course, I mean, I'm sure if they could, if, you know, if they could snap their fingers and do that, they would. I'm sure there's sure. a lot of,
1: yeah. take a lot of resources. I think them. that's
3: a great comment, though, because every company is a tech company. Period. Right, right, I mean, absolutely. That, that, that's the bottom line. So you know the chatbots there, but they want to make it easier for everyone to
1: access. Them. Yeah, and yeah, they should. But there's, it's great. I mean, it's a great time to be alive because there's <laughs> so though. much that you can do that you couldn't do. Yeah, is <laughs> it, these are the, these are the well, good uses of the internet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, right. Let's sure. let's focus on the positive. But there's yeah. just so much that we couldn't do even a few years ago that because of you know regulations and um, you know is accessible now like even yeah. you know you talk to founders about um testing for uh, urinary tract infections which was something that was like the bane of many women's existence a mm-hmm. very high percentage of women develop them used to have to go to the office now it's sort of like taking a pregnancy test where you can um basically put a strip you know
2: right right with all that's going on with mm-hmm. with women and like all you know and tr- under the trump administration it's, it's definitely nice to see these kind of developments absolutely. where absolutely
0: if you are looking to sell your private company stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. With more than four billion in company-approved transactions, SharesPost is the leading marketplace for private company shares. To learn more, visit us at SharesPost.com/equity. In, uh, in related news, uh, I think I'm going to a Planned Parenthood fundraiser concert tonight. So that's kind of—I didn't think that was going to come up, but here we are.
2: <laughs> Who is performing? Uh,
0: I, I don't. I don't know. Liza just told me we were going, so that's all I got. My uh, <laughs> 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 well, Anyways, uh, can I do Go one ahead. last thing on this? I, this is. Uh, we talk a lot sure. about um, the venture capital industry on the show. We talk a lot about how it's not particularly diverse and how it's getting more diverse as time goes along. Um, People often say that that matters because there'll be more money put into things that are not just aimed at what has been traditionally been a very white male industry. I think this is an example of that sort of thing in the flush, And so it's cool to see a lot of money going into these companies now. And I'm excited to see um, the next time we bring up a similar issue on the show. It's cool.
1: Um, Also, Ed, I know you don't really focus on um, consumer too much, but I I also think the company – and we've talked at at sort of uh, maybe too much uh, about some of the companies here. But there's so many male-focused consumer Brands that are coming up, uh, Ro, um, Hems, mm-hmm. yep. um So it'll be interesting to see how those companies do, if they raise even more money this year. They both raised, uh-huh. I think, in excess of like, I don't know.
2: Ro- I know Ro, well, Roman, Roma, okay. Roman, then, Roman, then not Roma. then Ro. <laughs> Roman, Roman raised an $88 million round this, okay. in 2017. 2018 wow. okay which is enormous yeah and it was a series a so i think we've talked about this multiple times just because that it was such a. a that wasn't
3: a seed round maybe <laughs> oh i, I know
2: right? i don't you know that, even know if you're coming kidding I think, might, I, might, well. I think that might as
3: well that's, that's coming next year i saw someone announce an eight million dollar seed round the other day and i just started scratching my head
1: oh yeah and it happens routinely eight or 80
3: uh an eight million oh, dollars that's nothing but that's enough
1: nobody even has to ask that question eight or eighty, because
2: that's how big they're
1: getting
3: it's absurd crazy it's insane and so confusing and I can't wait to talk
1: about it. I know. The nomenclature yeah. means absolutely nothing. Well, you know, what's funny, just as an
3: FYI, mm-hmm. we uh, registered the URL, firstcheck.vc, <laughs> because you know everyone started getting so confused about pre-seed, pre-pre-seed, seed, post-seed, right. you know, series post-seed. A, we said, look, here's the bottom line, folks. <laughs> we love enterprise <laughs> founders who are highly tactical. We're your first check lead. Okay. And nice. if you're like two young founders that actually are looking after a new market and you only need 500K, we can give you that. If you're a more experienced founder and you're doing a 2 and a half to $3 million round, we can do half of that too. Right. But the bottom line is, forget about all this nomenclature. Who's going to step in? Who's going to support you? And who's going to write that first check and bring right. everyone else in? So confusion gone. And I would love to push this first check idea. <laughs> you know, first check, second check, third check. Let's well, just make well, it really simple. Well, Honestly, while we're yeah. talking
1: about it, so do you prefer to write the first check to a company? I mean, you are a seed fund, but I don't know how we sort of, you know, if you...
3: I, I think of ourselves as... Um, product stages. Mm-hmm. So literally 90% of the time we are pre-product. Uh, two engineers in a room building stuff. When we funded Brad, I mean, for example, if we talk about Customer Later, which mm-hmm. announced their series C on
1: TechCrunch. Customer with a K. With a
3: K, that is. Yep. Um, they, uh, We funded Brad and Jeremy who had previously sold their company to Salesforce mm-hmm. in the same support space. And they came in with 12 slides and a new vision of what the future would be. And mm-hmm. that's the time that we love to get in. And that was a great team. And three and a half years later, they've raised from some of the best investors out there is Kanan for the A, Tomash and Redpoint for the B, and Alex Bard, and then uh, uh, Niraj and Logan from Battery for the C.
1: So I, I don't know, customer, I did happen to see that headline today, $35 million. Um, our colleague Tech uh, TechCrunch uh, Ingrid uh, London had written about it, calling it, um, I think, a slack for CRM. What does um, that mean? Can you tell us a little bit? Yeah, what, do, what does that mean?
3: I really don't know what that means, but you know, <laughs> yeah. we will roll with it to be honest with you, because I know the founder didn't position it that way. But that's cool. <laughs> um, so, so when Brad and Jeremy came in, they they've done a few different support startups, and uh, previously I was the first investor in Live Person and I'm on the board of that company. They're the first ones that invented Live Chat, and they're a public company today. Okay. And so when they came in, they said, "Look, here's a problem. Uh, we reach uh, we reach the companies that we buy from." through multiple channels, right? So email, chat, messenger, phone calls. The problem is that every time you reach someone, you're a ticket. Mm-hmm. You're a separate ticket and someone different handles you. So there's no integrated view of who you are. They said, look, let's start with the data infrastructure. The data infrastructure will be, let's treat everyone as a person. And whatever channel you come through, it doesn't matter. I'm going to see a Facebook-like timeline of everything you've done. Okay. And on top of that, with my data platform, you can integrate anything you want. So when Ingrid mentioned that they're like a Slack platform. Mm-hmm. Most of our c- companies or customers have at least 10 integrations. So that now you're not only seeing uh, the ticket and what channel they reach from and what the problem is. I can see order data. I can see like if your ring, I can see what happened if, if your doorbell is down or Wi-Fi is not working. So okay. it's improved efficiency 25 to 30%. And it's provided that beautiful experience for the support user where it's kind of like Slack, because it's really easy to use and beautiful and elegant. So that's, that's what they did.
1: It sounds interesting. I don't cover enterprise very closely. So to me, it sounds like something that I keep hearing. I mean, how does it sort of differentiate itself most um, dramatically from uh, competitors?
3: So I would say Zendesk is probably their primary competitor. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you look at what they do, you know, it's all siloed information. So it's really hard to see a, a view, like one unique view of the customer. Okay. Uh, I would say secondly, it's our stuff is much easier to use. Uh, so the third thing is that we've built is that once you have all that data there, you can do a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. So you can do automations, um, you know, you can create if then statements and automate some responses that come in. Okay. Uh, you can also uh, do other things like search for everyone that bought this product in the last 30 days and then send them an email. Mm-hmm. So if you think about it, that support mechanism is the first step before you actually can do other things as well. Uh, market to the customer and do two more things. So that's a broad vision It's to start with. That first touch experience after they purchase something, mm-hmm. and expand that to other areas.
1: And how do they think about pricing? Are they competing on price with uh, Zendesk?
3: Um, you know, they're, they're definitely not a, a price, mm-hmm. uh, you know, competitor. Mm-hmm. Um, we basically come in and say, "Look, here's our product," and I think if you have a vision to actually, and, and they came out with new positioning today about. This customer friendship idea. But if you have a vision where you want to be a, a leader in customer experience and that support, mm-hmm. then come use our platform because we can do these three different things. So it's really about a, a statement on where the world is going mm-hmm. and how companies want to treat their customer. Um, and that's kind of uh, the vision that they provide and the software to kind of do it.
1: And can I ask, so you funded these guys, unsurprisingly, they sold their last company to Salesforce. So it doesn't really, you know, if they say, look, we here's a paper napkin, I'm turning it into an airplane, <laughs> you, might, you might still give them it's a check. It's a rocket ship. No. <laughs> <laughs> but would you um, approach first-time founders the same way? Do you need to see more traction when you're talking to somebody who hasn't sold a company to Salesforce? Now, you know what's
3: interesting? Uh, the answer is, is no, mm. um, but in this case, if you think about it, you probably would say, if I met a first-time founder and they said, I'm going to go after Zendesk and Service Cloud, you mm-hmm. probably scratch your head and say, why are you even doing that? I mean, it's a massive market, but it's completely entrenched. So if we're going to actually go and reimagine what enterprise software used to be 10 years ago for the new age, mm-hmm. then you need founders like that in right. the super competitive spaces. However, if there's kind of a new area like serverless technology or serverless monitoring where there's completely green fields, you're going to have first-time founders. So there's a portfolio company called IOPipe, where the two founders are first-time founders. Um, it's Erica Windisch and Adam Johnson, but they're kind of on the forefront of how do you do monitoring, how do you how do you break and fix, how do you monitor, how do you debug all of these serverless functions that are coming out there. But there's you know there's no historical precedent, mm. so that's completely greenfield. Okay, so you've got to look at uh, the opportunity and, and the market.
2: Yeah, I mean, speaking of a. Uh... First-time founders or second-time founders. I think it is a lot easier to raise capital as as a second-time founder. And we saw this week um, the Wag founders. They decided they wanted to launch a bike share startup, and they did, and they raised thirty-seven million dollars <laughs>
1: because there are not enough of those in the world. Oh, already. there's
2: definitely not enough.
1: We but need this is
0: a this is a trike though, more. not a scooter. This is I think three wheels as opposed to two. Is that right?
1: Um, I, I don't I saw think an image so. of that. I'm I think sorry. I did research sort
0: of like for this, and I I may have... new
1: oh, no.
2: electric. New electric bike share startup. It almost looks
1: like a more like oh, it's a BMX. Just more ugly. Bike.
0: That's why I thought I It's had
1: three very ugly. It's ugly. Yes. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. But you know, I mean, what's interesting? Okay, so let's talk about this for a minute. So these guys, they are brothers, Jonathan and Joshua Viner. Wow. Um, so their company. WAG, of course, raised a ton of money from um, SoftBank at the same time. Josh, uh, who was the CEO, was replaced uh, by um, a former Yahoo executive, Hillary Schneider. Uh, They, I guess, went on to form some sort of – they were going to get into funding startups. Um, I guess they sort of quickly decided that they were going to focus their efforts on this new company called Wheels. So, uh, yes, as Kate just said, they raised $37 million in funding from Tenaya Bullpen um, Angel List uh, co-founder Naval Ravikant and others, but in addition to um, this company, I saw also another new company called I think like Oja, Ojo Ojo, um, based in Austin, and it's more like oh, okay. um, a Vespa. Hmm. And yeah, and I don't know if it's raised any money yet, but I what I think is interesting is like the world is already totally like clotted with these scooters and electric bikes, and now you know we're getting into completely different. Not not such different, but you know, different form factors. I mean, I don't know what makes sense ultimately, but I do think it's sort there's of there's not enough you know, room for everyone to
0: win. Yeah. I mean, it, if scooters time. don't win, maybe these yeah. new bikes can. But if the new, you know, and vice versa, I, I don't see everyone winning. So there's not probably enough demand for it. But given the scale of capital that's been going into non Bird Lime scooter companies in the world, I wonder if they're not just going to suffocate the entire market. Because I did some research on global scooter companies a few days ago because I hate myself. And I was, I was really surprised to find out that <laughs> there's a lot of companies that are working in this space akin to Wheels, this new um, wag found wag founder founded company that are doing Vespa's electric Vespa shares oh, around really? the world. It, it's a popular subcategory of micro mobility. But like here are just some mm-hmm. some notes about who's raised money as, as a scooter company recently. So Yellow in Brazil raised a sixty three million dollars Series A in September of eighteen. Tier mobility in Germany, twenty-five million euro Series A in October of eighteen. Beam Singapore, six point four million, October of eighteen. Wind Mobility Germany, twenty-two million dollar seed round, November eighteen. Vogo India, hundred million December eighteen. Dot Holland, twenty million euros, December 9 oh uh, January nineteen. And then uh, Blue Duck Scooters, US, five million, uh, January nineteen. Yeah, right. I it's tech, it's in Blue Texas I think Anyways, yeah. I did not make that up. It's on. Did the you just internet. make that up? Uh, So maybe someone else made that, but you know, I see this new company at thirty-seven million, and I'm just thinking, good luck, you know, because there's so much capital already at play here. You're going to have to raise super fast to find any sort of footing.
2: Yeah, but I think at least often the second generation of uh, of a company is at least slightly better. And it's funny to say these would be the second generation, but like I think they have slightly new and improved features. Like like Wheels says that they are Wheels says that they. Their uh, pro- their bikes last four times longer because they have swappable parts and batteries. Mm. So at least because, you know, we've heard a lot about and we talked a lot about how bird, bird scooters are ending up in Lake Merritt. They're ending up frozen. They're ending up broken to pieces. Right. You know, their their lifespans have proven to be quite short.
1: And maybe people, maybe they're sort of safer. I have no idea. And, but
3: and, and soon we're going to spawn the arms merchant who's going to build the system of record for the Salesforce-like platform for all no. scooter and mobility companies. So, do you have the hardware? I'm going to actually provide you the software. I'm going to charge you per scooter per incident. Sure. And I'm going to get sensors and do all that stuff. Well, so, there's,
1: uh, there's uh, already just... a company in Boston that does something like that, Super Pedestrian, which has um, this uh, oh, sort yeah. of electric wheel. Actually, I have one and it is amazing. Um, but they are trying to sell their technology to uh, scooter companies. And...
3: It's probably not a bad idea if your wheel's not taking off.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, maybe I know.
3: Hey, look, at the end of the day, there's probably going to be mass. I'm not a consumer guy, but it's probably going to be some massive aggregation play. Everyone's placing sure. their bets. I'm sure Uber will go out there, or Lyft will go out there, and just consume and buy a lot. Of yeah, supplies. that's
2: something we've talked about a few times. Yeah, yeah although it
1: hasn't happened, and it's interesting. It so, so Lyft. I mean, Uber was talking to both Bird and Lime. You know, according to our sources, as of you know, late last year, apparently those talks didn't go anywhere. Um, now, I guess Lime and um, Bird are both. Reportedly raising, I think they're both targeting like $300 million in new funding. Um, Bird at the same $2 billion valuation that it's sort of enjoyed for some time. Um, And Lime also at a $2 billion valuation, which is apparently like double its valuation from June. But um, they're both, ha- I think they both probably would have liked to have gotten acquired by Uber, and that didn't happen. that's a curse of
3: venture valuations, right? I'm sorry, I sure, think it's a sure. curse of venture valuations. We see it all the time, yeah. We saw it back uh in the frothy times. I mean, look, I think if you've been through cycles, you see this, and if you take the highest price possible, your price for per- perfection, mm-hmm. and then if an acquirer comes, which may be the right person, and the last investor says, I'm only getting 2x, and I just funded six months ago, right. the IR would be amazing, but. You promised me 5X. Let's right, say no. Right. And then who knows? The recession hits and all of a sudden you're, you're left holding the bag and funding more capital and cutting people. It, it just happens. These cycles happen all the time. And I don't want to be a doomsayer. Sure. But mm-hmm. you've got to be really smart about your valuation. So you want those upticks. You want great, you know, great kind of upticks on that. But at the same time, you've got to be really smart about it with the investor you're bringing in, the value they're bringing. And uh, you don't want to price for perfection <laughs> because you, once you do a down route, your employees don't. My stock's underwater. Why should I stay here? And then it it, it creates this ripple effect.
1: And we have to keep in mind, these companies are less than two years old. It's shocking how much they're worth already.
3: So some of my friends who've invested in some of these things, the growth rates look absolutely amazing. I haven't looked at the numbers. They've shared some of those numbers with me. But, you know, it is amazing that you can start from literally nothing, Mm -hmm. go down a logistics infrastructure. I mean, just from a positive perspective and have all these scooters all over the world. Mm -hmm. It's it's kind of mind-boggling that's all done in two years. Yeah, just from that perspective.
1: But there's so many problems that people didn't sort of. Oh no, I'm sorry, I was I so just going to point out that that's
0: totally correct what he just said. But also they're they're falling short of their uh, expectations. So the information reported, uh, I think it was today, yeah. uh, maybe it's yesterday, that Lime fell short of its um, annualized revenue goal of uh, of a pace of about 500 million. They got to like 250 to 300 million annualized run rate by the end of last year. So a very large number, very fast growth, but far short of. what was expected or what they hoped to hit um, and that's going to bring down your valuation in your next round as you pointed out Connie so I, I'm, I'm excited about them but I'm also kind of scared that they're that far off of their expectations in just two years
2: they were halfway off uh, they only, between they only 250 hit
0: 250 and 300 million, million annual run rate right wow, so it's quite a target of 500 million yeah that's pretty Ooh.
1: I mean, that's the thing, you know, like Ouch. cold conditions, cities limiting the number of scooters. I think a, that's a huge issue that these companies weren't anticipating. Um, also, the, the competitors flooding the markets. I have to say Bloomberg, I'm not sure if it was today or yesterday, wrote a really interesting story about these endowments that are um, these uh, college universities that are sort of indirectly funding these scooter companies and yet sort of hate them or have a very kind of um, conflicted <laughs> relationship with them. So for one, uh, the university, I'm sorry, not University of Michigan, Michigan State University is an investor in Upfront Ventures, which is a renowned um Venture firm in Los Angeles, and Upfront has backed. I'm not sure. I think maybe Bird. Yes, yeah, probably Bird. Bird. It's Bird um, yeah. And Michigan State hates these things because they are all over campus. People are tripping on, uh, you know, tripping over themselves, and you know, it's sort of. Um, in a way, I guess, you know, denigrating the look of the campus. So they're not that excited about them. And in, so apparently, you know, the, there's this discussion at the sort of administration level and somebody's like, hey, you know, by the way, we're kind of like a, we're an investor in Bird. Um And this has happened in other places. Well, even the city of San Francisco, I think, is also an LP, a limited partner in Upfront and the city of San Francisco. Um, got rid of all the scooters last year when they kind of descended on the city. They decided to only give out two permits. Bird is not one of the companies that they allowed uh, in to do back in to do a pilot program. And and the city of San Francisco, like the retirement um, plan, is an investor in Bird. So anyway, it's it's a funny uh, sort yeah, of a twist. Funny on how things. the world works. I mean, it's yeah. just a super <laughs> impressive also, conflict of terrible.
0: interest. I, I mean, I, it's that's fantastic.
1: Yeah. Well, saying. I mean it is, but it, it, it's just – it's its funny. I don't know if – I mean, Ed, you would probably have a point of view on this. But I mean because these these pensions and things don't have any sort of say over where the money gets spent. I mean that's sort of like the – that's why they're called limited partners because exactly. their hands are kind of tied. Uh, yeah. Well, I things.
0: want to, uh, to scoot us along again <laughs> to uh, the broader venture market because there's been kind of some interesting signals that I've been keeping an eye on that I want to get people's feedback from. So I want to start with the US and kind of the climate or the temperature in the venture world that we're seeing. And I, I know we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, uh, but it, it's important because there was an article on the journal uh, this week that mentioned a couple of quotes from VCs discussing uh, the pace of investment. And there was a quote that I thought was really fascinating. So Josh Wolf of Lux Capital said that kind of uh, the venture market was swapping fear of missing out or FOMO for shame of being suckered. And so, in my view, it's kind of a flip from people being concerned about missing out on the next big thing versus trying to avoid putting too much money into the wrong company. And that's quite a change from where things were in the middle of last year, especially thinking back to other moments in the unicorn era that were super, super hot. And so, I don't know. We all talk to a lot of VCs. I think I'm getting kind of a similar feel from people that there's a lot more caution in the market. And I'm kind of curious if, we're, if anyone else has seen that um, the same kind of like, I don't know, just, just reticence to write larger checks. Uh, among VCs that we talked to now, Connie, what are you hearing?
1: Uh, well, I mean, it's, it looks to me like uh, that's probably true, and I think I think we're still seeing tons of deals, but I think these deals have been probably struck. Um, you know, these deals take a while to come together, so I think a lot of this stuff probably came together late last year as the writing was starting to kind of appear on the wall. I mean, even at your company. That we were talking about earlier, customer just raised thirty-five million dollars, but it had just raised around seven months earlier. Now yep. that's kind of uh, become normal in the last year or two, but that's very abnormal historically. Like, was that company kind of thinking, you know, the winds could be shifting? Let's let's.
3: Yeah, you, know, you know what I see the world uh, happening in the enterprise space is a flight to quality, mm-hmm. and I was actually with one of our founders the other night, uh, Pankaj Chaudhary from Fortress IQ, and we were joking. and I tweeted out that. Uh, he said, "Look, we're a recession-enhanced business versus a recession-proof business." I'm like, "Wow, that that is really taking it to another level." <laughs> but if you think about a lot of these enterprise companies. We're um, looking at uh, Confluent, for example. If you're a Fortune 500 company and you want to become a software company and you want to deploy AI, you have to have some t- type of data streaming infrastructure. Um, and so, you know, if you looked at kind of the quotes about Confluent, most of their customers are Fortune 500 customers. It's Audi. It's banks. And, you know, that's a company that no matter what type of economy we go through, you're going to need that if you want to become more agile and deliver better software to your customers and be smarter. Right. So I think there's a massive flight to quality and you're going to see a lot more enterprise rounds, I think, in the next two or three months. I know stuff that's happening where you're talking about three, four, five hundred billion dollar rounds six months after the previous round. So the enterprise space is different from the consumer space. Am I saying that's a good thing? I'm not saying that's a good thing, but I do know there's a flight to quality and that if these companies... Um, can survive and even sell in, in in tough times maybe not as fast as they did previously they're raising capital hey
1: everyone
0: don't forget this episode is brought to you by shares post
1: can can we talk about confluent for a second i know that it just raised money again from Sequoia um, and it's um, which had led maybe its last round um, which is a big deal for sequoia to you know, lead around a for a company that it's already a backer in. Uh, its other backers are Benchmark and Index, all very good firms. So I assume there's something going on here. But I don't really, um, I didn't understand it based on sort of a brief description. And can you sort of explain to people why this is, um, yeah, so, in, in, you know, it's plain so language I think, I, I think it's an
3: amazing company, by <laughs> the way. And, and, and you know, and so it came out of the uh, uh, open source project called Apache Kafka. Mm-hmm. And the founders of that came out on LinkedIn. And they basically built a real-time streaming data infrastructure, which means that if you think about all the different uh, pieces of the data coming into an enterprise or even at LinkedIn, mm-hmm. and they need to kind of monitor it constantly and update things, um, you know, you can do it much faster and much cheaper using like uh, this uh, Apache Kafka kind of platform. So they commercialize that. Okay. If you're a large enterprise, like an Audi, let's say like an Audi, you're grabbing sensor data from all the automobiles, you've got to aggregate all that data, and then you've got to... Uh, put a dashboard on top and monitor that in real time. And mm-hmm. this stuff is happening at, at millisecond speed. So how do you do that in an easy way? Another example would be old school enterprises used to take data siloed in all these different places that they that they gathered and they would do batch processing at night. They would move the data at night, you know, and so you'd be 24 hours behind or eight hours behind. But now with a platform like this, you can move the data instantly. You can grab data from one place, move it to another place, and then analyze it. So if you're looking at moving towards as close to real-time environment as possible to take data and make decisions on it. Mm-hmm. That's what it does. So if you think about the opportunities down the line, you can think it's pretty broad. And apparently, if you saw one of the articles that came out, it looks like they grew like three and a half times year over year. You know, 100 100 million in bookings. So wow. you know, the, the numbers are there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm not going to quote on valuations or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But but you can see why a company like that. And you can say, gee, the market's pretty big.
1: Right, right. And, and so what about, what's going to happen to the enterprise companies that aren't sort of part of that, you know, flight to quality or, or you know, I mean, do you see consolidation? Do you see a lot of these? You, you, uh, you know, have yeah. your sort of.
3: Yeah. So I, I think right now, just if we we just went through an exercise uh, at the end of the year, looking at our whole portfolio, mm-hmm. and figuring out how much runway do they have? How do we make sure they have at least 24 months runway? So either get them funded or have our, have our founders start thinking about, what might happen if they don't hit a quarter or two? If the uh, economic market is uncertain, you know you see the numbers. I mean, the macro numbers—they don't lie, right? China slowing down. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the trade war going on. You know, some people are talking about recession, interest rates. Are going, I mean, and there's you know our administration. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of uncertainty, and people don't like uncertainty. Sure. And then you also have a lot of venture capitalists talking about, "Gee, I'm starting to get worried a little bit." So you start. There's a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. Mm-hmm. So we just want to make sure people have their A, B, and C plans put together, and. Just frankly, you and I talked about it earlier, I've been doing this for over 20 years, and I've seen multiple cycles. I saw amazing cycles in 96, 97, 98. I saw 2001's disaster. I mean, we had the last IPO that went out called Live Person. It's still public today. Uh, We saw 04, and then we saw 08. And I think that there's a lot of people out there that have only seen up and to the right Mm -hmm. in hockey stick growth format. And I just caution everyone to make sure that you actually think about not growth at all costs, but how do you kind of grow efficiently? and and make sure you have a plan a plan b and a plan c as you kind of go through it. So if you read the story about Con- confluent they're basically like yeah we didn't really need the money we took you know we we took as much as we as as we were willing to take right now people wanted to throw more at mm-hmm. it Customer basically in their in their uh, comment said that there a lot of investors came inbound. Um, and they weren't really looking to raise capital they didn't need to. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we've gotten an amazing investor. I mean, you know, one of the best SaaS investors out there in Neurage yeah. Battery. So, you know, that, that was a great opportunity. Well, for uh, the <clears> numbers <throat> are $125 million
0: <throat> Series D for Confluent at a $2.5 billion valuation. And that's up 5X from its Series C valuation of $500 million according to the company. So pretty astounding growth there in kind of like I think about a year or two-year timeframe. Nuts. Um, but uh, you talked about China. And I wanted to – that was my next topic. So beautiful segue. Thank you for that. Um there's been some interesting data kind of coming out <laughs> about the the second half of the year in the Chinese venture market. And if you recall the first half of 2018, it seemed like China was going to be the biggest thing in the, in the history of technology, that Silicon Valley was passe, and that the torch had been kind of passed across the ocean uh, to the Chinese startup market as the new epicenter of the world. Uh, that's changed a lot because in the last couple of quarters, quarters three and four, Chinese venture numbers went down, and that's according to both some Crunchbase numbers that I've seen and some data from uh, Preken, P R E Q. Frequent. Thank you. Today is not a great day for pronunciations on Pre-pre-Quen. equity, but I hope everything else is going well. And, and the reason <laughs> why I want to bring this up is uh, according to the yeah. data that I was just looking at before the show, the Q4 Chinese venture capital totals were a year low, so the lowest of the year, and also they were down year over year in dollar terms. So I'm kind of curious what we think this is going to do to the Chinese venture market because it was running very hot with a lot of very large rounds, a lot of really, really heavy investment and I presume some hefty burn rates. And so to see this much capital um, decline to join in, if you will, later on in the year, I'm, I'm concerned that some companies may run short of cash and we all know what happens then. So I think deal counts
2: is up year over year, but are uh, dollars down were down
0: compared Q4? to Q4.17, but Q4.18 was the smallest of the year for dollar volume in 2018. So it was kind of a local minimum twice.
2: That's interesting because, yeah, it seems like globally, uh, capital uh, you're about up, uh, down, 2018 as a whole? Kind
3: of?
0: You need to dial into the individual quarters. It's a bit, it's a bit Just wonky. Like yeah.
1: yeah. Oh, I uh-huh. see. I see. Okay. I don't know. I haven't been following very closely. I was um, watching Bloomberg earlier uh, today, and they had an analyst talking about the fact that e-commerce is uh, still surging in China, despite the trade war and the economic slowdown. Um, And uh, I guess... A big part of what's driving that is growth of the middle class and what they call, you know, tier three markets. That's sort of more rural areas where consumers are coming online and engaging in commerce for the first time. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Big ticket items are slowing down there, um, including, uh, I guess, on Alibaba. Meanwhile, I guess in the U.S., big ticket items are kind of, uh, sort of kind of in some ways supporting the economy here. Um but uh, things like fashion, cosmetics, still going strong. Yeah. There. So,
0: well, uh, one more thing on I, I the uh, on the China the U.S. situation because I've been tracking book. this as carefully as I can from from this distance because it's, in my view, the most fascinating narrative right now in in technology. Uh, at, at Davos, I'm sorry to bring that up, but I think CNBC was interviewing a uh, a former uh, member of the People's Bank of China, PBOC, a higher ranked guy, and he said in the wake of the Huawei. Um, arrest in Canada of its, I think, CFO or CTO, one of the two, um, that the investment across the ocean between China and the United States could fall dramatically. And I wanted to throw that out as an idea, something that might come up on the show later on. If we see a dramatic slowdown in deal volume um, of Chinese money into American companies or American money into Chinese companies, that could really shift dynamics because there's been a lot of cross-ocean investment, if you will. Um, again, it's too soon to know because venture data lags. And mm-hmm. so we can't mm-hmm. even really tell you the answer yet. But hopefully in a couple more weeks, we'll start to see kind of early indication of if the trade spat, which is now included a, a large number of things as opposed to just the Trump administration, um, continues. And if it does impact those numbers, it will rejigger how capital is raised both here and there. So that's going to be a big 19 narrative. And I'm excited to kind of keep uh, checking in on that as we go
3: along.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, another point um, that uh, Ed made that I thought would be sort of interesting to drill into is just, you know, what's happening here in terms of um, companies needing to be better prepared uh, as, you know, for for a potential sustained downturn. And uh, Kate, you wrote a super interesting piece this week on Munchery, a food kit company that went out of business and kind of did it in the worst way possible. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about That's that? That's exactly
2: right. So on Monday... Muntry emailed their customers, um, telling them, "Hey, like we're shutting down effective immediately. You know, we can give you refunds over the next couple of days." But what they didn't do is they didn't tell any of their vendors. So Muntry was a prepared meal meal delivery company, but they also worked with local vendors to just like provide you know additional bits to the meals. Like they worked with um, one bakery in San Francisco. The guy made uh, cheesecakes mm-hmm. for the meal kits. So all of these businesses they'd worked with for a number of years. They just you know instead of telling them. A day or two ahead, maybe even weeks ahead that they were shutting down, they just essentially ghosted them like they they allowed them to continue making deliveries until the final hours. And they didn't they didn't tell them they still to this day have said nothing. Um, and actually, oh, they, they're not even responding mean, to uh, Kate, phone calls who don't or emails. So this is kind of a crazy tale. Oh sorry let's my millennial my millennial uh, <laughs> just my millennial talk um so they they just disappeared on them they're not responding they're not providing any explanation you know they're just completely uh i think one of the quotes in my in my story was from a woman who was just like it seems like they just closed the door and left the country because they just they're not holding themselves accountable it's very, it's very strange actually and you know this food delivery startups are known to shut down like there's been several that have shuttered there was one in 2017 called sprig and it's similarly it's similarly shut down pretty suddenly but they paid all their vendors back they gave their vendors notice they talked they talked to their vendors and i know this from my reporting so they the Muntry, you know i think the moral of the story here is is Montre didn't have to uh go out like this and it's really a shame that they they did it this way
1: one of the women you talked to said she found out about it by reading the media exactly you know? <laughs> she Which said is- she read it in the
2: san francisco chronicle a day after um you know a day after they'd sent that initial email to customers and
1: this is sort of i mean i feel like we're seeing this in the shutdown too where you know like we're we sort of lose perspective here in Silicon Valley, where everybody is uh, sent a centimillionaire, millionaire. But I mean, it's hard getting by. And there's uh, one of the, the guy who made the cheesecakes uh, said, you know, he was owned, owed seventeen hundred dollars, and it was hard for him to pay his employees without that check. I mean, it's not like yeah. a lot of these are very, very, very low margin businesses. They can't just you know you can't just sort of up and leave. But Ed, I, you know, I'd love to talk to you about. Or we'd love to talk to you about. Um, you know, sort of in this case, I mean, you know, reading Kate's piece, I sort of thought, shouldn't they like the board of directors been involved here? Like, you know, you sort of think, and I'm sure I'm not the only one thinking like, aren't there wealthy venture investors involved here? Like who should pay these vendors or how did this, how did this come to this? I know it's not so simple, but tell us sort of. Yeah.
3: Look, I've unfortunately been doing this for 22 years. So Mm -hmm. you're going to see some, you know, bad situations as long as, you know, awesome situations. But, you know, if you're, driving towards a point where you think the business is not gonna raise any more capital um, and it's gonna you know eventually have to shut it down, you need to start doing that analysis way ahead. Mm -hmm. You know, a year ahead you need to know what are my liabilities, you know, what is the crude vacation that my employee a lot of people are like, okay, if I shut my company down, you know, I don't have to pay my employees, but what's the crude vacation? I mean that's a that's a liability. And so what happens is is that boards are probably sitting there thinking about, first of all, you've got to do the math. Mm-hmm. Like what, who do I have to pay? How much is that total number? And then secondly, uh, boards have to do the math and say, okay, how much cash is in the bank if we keep running for two or three more months to try to raise another round of capital, mm-hmm. like, you know, what might we have to come out of our pocket with? Right. And, and so those are, and, and people don't want to come out of their pocket with money to actually fund things. And what will happen is if there's people fighting over that situation you know, and maybe the founder wants to take it to the mat. I'm not saying in this situation, but mm-hmm. let's say a founder wants to take it to the mat to the last day because I they think they're getting funding. And and they get to a point where they're like, oh, my God, we're going to shut it down. And we just went four months past what we could afford. Mm-hmm. Um, board members probably should resign before that point in time mm-hmm. because you do not want to be responsible for a situation for for a train wreck. And And, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I think we may see some more of that. And uh, I think people just need to be really smart you know, about, you know, being ethical and doing business the right way. Look, unfortunately, when it when it comes to take care of your employees, um, you know, these food delivery businesses are interesting, right? Because you're talking about small mom and pop kind of shops and one or two men one or two person shops. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think that you, you should probably take that into account uh, They're You know, they're almost like an extension of your employee base in a way. But, yeah.
2: And what I failed to mention is that um Montreal had raised 125 million dollars, so uh, in v- in venture capital funding, at one point reaching a 300 million dollar valuation. Although they hadn't raised capital um, really since 2015, so um, for the most part, you know, I'm, I'm not really sure how they were funding themselves. And they had, they at one point raised a five million dollar round, I think, uh, at some point, maybe early 2017. So it was sort of like a help us type of round after raising. Large financing, so Mm -hmm. that's also a little interesting.
1: And the company, I think, you know, was sort of known, at least to tech reporters, for example, not to be doing well. It had a laid off thirty percent of its staff in. May or something like that. But, you know, Mm -hmm. these – again, these local vendors shouldn't have to stay on top of (laughs) the tech news in order to know if they're going to get – Exactly. They had no idea. I mean, they just thought everything was fine until suddenly suddenly – I have their investor list pulled up here. I
2: mean,
0: names like Menlo Ventures, Graycroft, eVentures, Sherpa Capital, Signatures Capital, Northgate Capital, Moose Partners, Matt Mullenweg, Justin Bateen. There's enough money there to cover a $1,700 bill that was left from other portfolio companies. I think they have a more responsibility to not screw over small businesses. Otherwise, you're bad at
1: business. (laughs) Well – I kind of think so, too. One of the investors involved is, um, I think, who maybe led the deal for Menlo and for Sherpa mm-hmm. is uh, Shervin Pishevar, who mm-hmm. I think has sort of stepped away from venture capital. Um, but he's an early Uber investor. And um, anyway, I think you could sort of see, you know, these vendors just sort of feeling frustration with him and the rest of the board and the company. I don't, I don't even know if he's involved in the, the company anymore. But mm-hmm. um, Ed, another thing, so I know that VC's, um, have to buy sort of like insurance to kind of keep them from getting. Is that true? I mean, uh, like have, director insurance. Yeah, you, sort
3: you, of... you get director insurance. You have insurance for your fund. Right, yeah, definitely,
1: which makes sense. Um, I'm just wondering. So, so they're sort of protected, but in terms of the company, um, get, like liquidating, how what's the process? Because again, I think we're going to see a lot of this. I mean, we saw a lot of companies last year shut down, not just Theranos, which blew through like a billion dollars, <laughs> yeah. but um, a shipping company called Ship. <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. Rethink Robotics, which made uh, sort of industrial robots and I think maybe went through, I don't know, maybe like 80 million. Um, there's going to be more companies that go out of business invariably. Yeah. What is sort of like what happens now? Like what will happen to Munchery? They, they had these kitchens. I don't know if they have. Sort of much in the way of hard or soft assets, yeah. but what's the liquidation process like?
3: So, so, the first thing you need to think about: if you have debt, mm-hmm. then at some point in time, if you're uh, insolvent, you have to work for the debt holders. So, basically, the debt holders could take your company. If there's no debt, um, you need to think about: can I operate another day because I need to pay payroll? I mean, that, that's a mm-hmm. statutory legal responsibility for uh, the management and the board. So, you cannot actually legally, you know, uh, keep working in it knowing that you're not going to be able to pay them in two weeks because you're liable for that you'll have to come out of that come out of your pocket for that so okay. you don't want to go there that also includes a crude vacation um but then and then the creditors are next right so then you know at some point in time you know you, you might file you know for bankruptcy and then bankruptcy court takes over and says okay let's figure out all the assets that are left maybe mm-hmm. you, you hire a service like a sherwood or something they mm-hmm. come in assess the value of all your furniture and everything else and maybe they go down the list and so maybe you know your vendors get you know, 10 cents on the dollar back mm-hmm. after mm-hmm. all the assets or anything else you can sell, even the IP is put together. And that's kind of typically the process. You know, unfortunately, as I said, I've seen it before and it's almost a, a good experience in a way. It's a bad experience, but a good experience because you, you know where you don't want to go, mm-hmm. you know, unless you've been there mm-hmm. and seen it and felt it mm-hmm. and, and, you know, felt horrible about it, you, you, you don't want to go there. So you want to do everything possible to make sure months ahead, years ahead, you're thinking about what you don't want to do.
1: And I know this is not a conversation that anyone wants to have with a startup founder who's got big aspirations of, you know, developing the next unicorn, but is this something that VCs should be talking to their founders about, like, um, just so they know, or or is it the case that you would have enough of an inkling as the company is going down, that that's when you sort of have. These well, it, it shouldn't be a
3: surprise. Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, if you're in, if you're directly involved with the business mm-hmm. and and you know work with the founders, that's number one. Number two is, you know, typically when there's less than twelve months of cash, you start thinking about what are your plans. Let's work backwards. When do you need to go out and raise capital? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, who do you kind of go after? And if that doesn't work, and if you don't hit your milestones and sales, what's plan B? Let's start finding a home mm-hmm. for you. Right. But you've got to you've got to communicate with the founders and have a give and take and a collaborative nature because you, you don't want to ever go there. It should never happen that way. Right. And once again, I don't know these consumer businesses and how much money gets tied up and all these other things. Mm-hmm. I'm just talking from the enterprise perspective. Um, you know, we we should all be together saying with the founders and saying, okay, let's come up with a plan that we all agree on. You know, let's hit our numbers. If not, you know, let's go raise money with, you know, eight months left. Of cash, mm-hmm. if that doesn't happen. And then of course, you know, the existing investors might love what they're doing. And we, we might be like, let's step up, we're going to step up and buy more and give you mm-hmm. another 18 months. So there's a whole variety of things, but you have to kind of plan and think about it. Uh,
1: you know, a, a year or two ago, I wrote a story called uh, the myth of due diligence, because um, I think we, people sort of think sometimes that investors know more than they do. I mean, it really depends on <laughs> how forthcoming <laughs> the uh, executive uh, the management team wants to be. Um, uh, it's Can I ask, like, do you have visibility into your um, portfolio company's numbers, or are you sort of trusting them to be candid with you?
3: You, you have to be. You, you have to enter that. You can't enter like into a marriage mm-hmm. without having that trust basis mm-hmm. together. And I wrote a blog post many years ago, and it said, um, you know, good news travels fast and bad news doesn't travel at all. <laughs> right? But the reality of it, it should be, if you have a very good relationship with your founder, um, is that bad news should travel faster than good mm-hmm. news. Because we like to say that unless you tell us early and give us the signals, then we can't help you. Right. Like, I'm not here to kind of say, oh, you know, be, be afraid of the board or you know, we're here to help you. We want to roll up our sleeves and help you. But mm-hmm. if you don't share that information, we can't. And, you know, I've been, of the 20 years I've done it and all the investments I've made, there's probably been two founders where, you know, you had that trust relationship and at some point in time, you just, we're getting the wrong information. Right. And so that's a very, very minor, minor percentage of all the other ones that you know, th- that I've invested in. But, right. but I think that relationship is super, super important.
1: I think so, too. And um, one thing that probably changes over time is, you know, you're a seed stage investor. I think you do sort of naturally have a closer relationship with companies. I think as they get older and they're they're getting involved with the later stage investors, there's a lot more sort of everyone's a little bit more hands off. And I think that probably information flow uh, isn't as... Uh, isn't the same anyway i think we are running out of time according to our producer who's giving us the hook (laughs) motion ed thank you so much for coming really great to see you thank
3: you for having me it's awesome to see you as well
1: alex we'll see you next week
3: all right everybody thank you for listening and a big
0: thank you to connie loizos our producer christopher gates our executive producer henry pick and we will see you all right here next week